I'm Megan. I'm Tyler. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. I just (laughs) got distracted and forgot our tagline. (laughs) That is what we do. We analyze it. Uh, Although often we're just praising it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a really incredible work. It truly is. It truly is. Tyler, let me get right into it and tell you what I might be distracted by. Oh, okay. Ben Franklin in the news in the past week. Wait, what? This is big. So, okay. Uh, news. <laughs> last week, as you may recall, or last two weeks, whatever it was, we watched the Ben Franklin episode. We also got into a supply shelf discussion about the history of paper. Yeah. So this, I guess, this news is kind of supply shelf adjacent. I was scrolling around through the New York Times and came across this headline. What Benjamin Franklin learned while fighting counterfeiters. Long before there were Benjamins in circulation, the founding father was all about experimenting with printing techniques as he worked on securing colonial printed currency. Wow. Okay. Okay. Let me say that in my life before our last podcast, when we talked about early American paper and Ben Franklin, I would have thought this was the most boring article of all time. And it's pretty boring in some ways. It goes into the scientists who are studying the use of ink and print and stuff like that from hundreds of years ago. So not my field, but really interesting. I just want to read you a couple of paragraphs to share with our listeners Benjamin Franklin and his history with paper in this country. Okay, I'm ready. So here we go. Wait, are we technically in supply shelf right now? Where are we in the office right now? I th- that's what I was saying. It's kind of supply shelf adjacent. Um, I think this is supply shelf. Okay, yeah, we're there. Okay. I don't know if it's sort of conference room because that's where Ben Franklin spent most of his time. I don't know quite where to put this, but it just really brought together themes from last time. Love it. So I'm reading from the article by... Uh, Veronique Greenwood. And this is what she says. When Benjamin Franklin moved to Philadelphia in 1723, he got to witness the beginnings of a risky new experiment. Pennsylvania, we're back to Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania had just begun printing words on paper and calling it money. How fascinating is this? (laughs) So there's our start of printing money, 1723 in Philadelphia. Go moving on. The first American paper money had hit the market in 1690. Metal coins never stayed in the 13 colonies long, flowing in a ceaseless stream to England and elsewhere as payment for imported goods. Several colonies began printing bits of paper to stand in for coins, stating that within a certain time period, they could be used locally as currency. The system worked, but haltingly, the colonies soon discovered. Print Too many bills and the money became worthless, and counterfeiters often found bills easy to copy, devaluing the real stuff with a flood of fakes. Franklin, who started his career as a printer, was an inveterate inventor 
who all, sorry, I'm struggling to read here, was an inveterate inventor who would also create the lightning rod and bifocals. Let me read this a third time. Sorry, I'm struggling on this sentence. We might need to edit this out. Third try. Franklin, who started his career as a printer, was an inveterate inventor who would also create the lightning rod and bifocals, found paper money fascinating. In 1731, he won the contract to print 40,000 pounds for the colony of Pennsylvania, and he applied his penchant for innovation to currency. During his printing career, Franklin produced a stream of Baroque, often beautiful money. He created a copper plate of sage leaf to print on money to foil counterfeiters. The intricate pattern of veins could not easily be imitated. He influenced a number of other printers and experimented with producing new paper and concocting inks. <laughs> so there you go, the historical supply shelf. I love this. Um, <laughs> uh, I was doing some papery searching um, to meet the demand for a history of paper or whatever. Um, so... <laughs> I feel like you've, yeah, Corey's demand, but we don't have any, you know, uh, but, um, but just, so if you gave us the history of paper, I'm going to give you a couple of updates in contemporary paper news. Um, yes. So <laughs> number one is contemporary the, paper news. I like this. We both have his, historical paper news and contemporary, contemporary paper. paper. Yeah. <laughs> so Tacoma, let me take you over to Tacoma, Washington as of yesterday. Um, the city learned that one of its historic paper mills will be shutting its doors in just a few oh. months. Uh, the West Rock Company announced that all operations at its Tacoma paper mill will end by September 30th, citing high operating costs and a high need for capital investments in the facility. Um, mm. And uh, uh, so there's like 400 people or so um, that work there. Uh, that will be out of jobs. And so I was thinking about that alongside these two other bits of news. So France is going to end non-essential printing of paper receipts. Um, mm. And the IRS in the United States is supposedly digitizing all tax returns by 2025. Um, so we are we are looking at a paperless world, Megan. Wow. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just intriguing to me, you know, what that, what, not only what does that mean, but also when the inevitable office reboot happens, <laughs> will it no longer be a paper supply company? Will it be like a, a chat GPT company? Oh. You know, anyway, wow. I don't know what would the equivalent of a kind of dying business, but not because if paper is dead, like what would the equivalent business be right now? Would it just be higher education? <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a great, great question, Tyler. And what a rich history it is. So spanning from Ben Franklin, our founding father, expanding the use of paper in this country to now move to eliminate it completely. I don't know. I don't feel great about this. Um, can I tell you a quick, uh, quick random family story? Yes, please. Is okay. it paper related? It's paper related. So when okay, so we're still in the paper news segment. Yeah. So so my dad, uh, you know, uh, famously canonically like an asshole. Um, for those who don't know, uh, <laughs> anyway, 
Yeah, canonic. That's canon. Um, he. Uh, so anyway, um, before he like left and you know is out of my life, I'm you know relatively young or whatever. And he one of the things that he loved to do was like make a scene. So he would like fight with waiters. He would demand to see the manager. He was like your kind of Karen before there was a Karen. Um, but one of his favorite things to do, and it would mortify me as a child was we would go to like for example like a circuit city or a best buy that kind of a place um those i don't know if you recall this but like you know there was a time when like credit card transactions you didn't sign digitally everywhere you would still sign on like paper right like oh yeah yeah right and so but at those places i remember it was like the early days of like starting to have they would swipe your card and then you would sign digitally right oh and he would insist that they like print out a receipt that he then signs <laughs> and then they would like archive that or whatever and like just picture the 15 16 year old worker at best buy who's like been told, you know, here's, here's what you do for your job. And then like this guy comes in and is like, fuck you. I'm not going to sign your thing because you're going to steal my signature and like use it in all these places or whatever. And you know, the, the work oh, like, uh, like an identity theft. Yeah, thing. That was what he was worried about. Supposedly. I mean, I think he just wanted to fight with people, but yeah, it was like a, a, ostensibly about identity. Theft. So he would elevate this to like, get the manager to come out and then like, the manager eventually would just cave and be like, fine, sign this or whatever. And so, you know, I always kind of wonder, like, what does my father do now, given that, like, everywhere you go, except a restaurant where it almost seems pointless, but everywhere else you you sign the digital thing. Yeah. You know, or or worse uh, in terms of identity theft. And um, uh, anyway, but I just I always think about that as like that transitional moment when things people who were raised with a kind of paper signature were moving into a new world and some resisted it uh <laughs> pretty hard and it uh, to no end it's it's funny to think about circuit city being the cutting edge <laughs> company that was you know innovating in terms of receipt technology especially now that it doesn't exist question mark i don't know yeah hmm I, I gotta say, I I think I'm gonna, I, I think I'm gonna be one of these people who's gonna really be difficult about going totally paperless, though. Yeah, no, I well, I I've been like thinking about like not letting my students use laptops uh, in class because it's a nightmare when they use laptops. They're not present at all. They're not, and so I was like, okay, can I insist that they you know use pen and paper? maybe we can make the paper industry revived although as we're talking about this are you turning me into my father what's happening <laughs> this is becoming a political podcast in which we are trying to revive the paper industry you know what you can only bend me so far you made me an office fan but you're not gonna break get me on your your paper socialist agenda how can we, Tyler, how can we support that paper company that's closing down? Uh, too late. <laughs> I think it's too late. We we build a time machine and uh, 
Well, in other supply shelf news, uh, this may be of interest to our listeners, um, but uh, this comes from uh, Corey, uh, who we've talked about many times on the pod, um, also known as Leonardo DiCaprio over email. Um, But anyway, she emailed me this New York Times wire cutter article that was published on July 26, 2023, so within the last week, called The Best Pen, uh, which, you know... I imagine for some of our listeners who care about the supply shelf that you might want to check this out. So maybe we can put it in the, put a link on Instagram or something. But if you just Google New York Times, the best pen, you know, wire cutter, it'll come up. Um, Do you feel a little, do you feel a little like they, what, what, what is that? What is that phrase they use? Like they scooped us. Are you, you I mean, like they stole our project and beat us to it. Yeah. 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 I'm not thrilled. I'm not thrilled to see an article with this title because I feel like this was forthcoming from us, but okay, I'm open to it. I will say though, that it's all bullshit because they do not include what we have decided as the best pen. Okay. Um, They under also great is pilot precise V five RT an inexpensive pen for writing with dark, precise lines rollerball mm. and great for fine lettering or drawing now it has the clicker and the grip so i think this is the pen that our previous listener who wrote in was initially into am i correct on that i think you're correct i think that i think that's um that was eric's previous pen of choice yeah. until trying our suggested best pen and changing over so what i hear you saying is fuck the new york times right that's <laughs> so far today the new york times has brought us great content on ben franklin and terrible content on pens but let's let's see let's at least share with us what did this person select as the best pen right and this is wire cutter i guess they do they do a significant amount of research i have used this for other products but i'm skeptical their first link at the bottom is why you should trust us which makes me not trust them (laughs) But I will just say, okay, so it says, um, uh, you know, their number one pick. So this is their pick pick for the best pen. It's the Uniball Jetstream RT, the best everyday ballpoint pen. With its fast drying ink, this pen is our go-to for everyday writing on any kind of paper. Uh, It dries quickly, so it's great for lefties. Hey, some lefty representation. I appreciate that. And anyone who's concerned about smudging, thanks to its hybrid ink, it produces the darkest lines of any ballpoint pen we tested, and the ink flows out smoothly and evenly without skipping, like a gel pen, but with the quick-drying advantages of a ballpoint. It's water-resistant, fade-resistant, and formulated to resist check washing, too. Um, it's a wire cutter pick since 2013. Okay. Um, thoughts on that? You know, I had never thought about considering resistance to check washing. <laughs> That feels like it's becoming less relevant in a paperless world, but we do still use checksum. Is that so? Is check washing when people like clean it off and then rewrite it for a larger amount of money or to themselves or whatever? Uh, thieves prepare and wash checks with specific chemicals to remove the payee information and amount, but keep the rest of the checks information and the signature. What this exists. This exists. This see, this is what Ben Franklin was working on in 1723. Right. 
Nothing changes, man. Nothing <laughs> changes. <laughs> We're still thinking about this with pen technology. Okay. So, okay. But here's my question to you. Like, this is a sort of general, this, this brings us back to our bread and butter, which is like language, you know, rhetoric, metaphor. Wait, sure. I was going to say, what is our bread and butter? <laughs> <laughs> Shame, neuroses, and uh, <laughs> overthinking. But for the sake of argument, when something is X resistant, what does that mean? Or what does it signify to you? So when something is water resistant, fade resistant, and resists check water, like what is the threshold of resistance to, do you know what I mean? That's a good question. And it seems like it's anywhere between zero and 100%. It's kind of like the word natural, you know, that gets attached to products and stuff like that. And really it's meaningless because you, I don't know. I, I think I'd say the other thing about the word resistant here is that it just plants for me things that I didn't even know I was supposed to be concerned about. I didn't know that I should be looking for check washing resistance in pens. And I just refused to take that into consideration. Yeah, I don't. There are just certain things I want to keep out of my mind. I'm not going to worry about. I don't want to worry yeah. about enough. Yeah. Not enough. Um, well, if you listeners would like to comment on the best pen or uh, ask us to never again talk about the history of paper. Uh, <laughs> not just into some other, you know, direction. Um, all you have to do is email us at the best office hours podcast at gmail.com. That's the best office hours podcast at gmail.com. And you can write about anything, ask us a question, whatever it is. All right. Is there anywhere else we should go before getting into the episode? We got no nothing at receptionist desk. I have no revisions and regrets over in accounting. What about you? You know what? Actually, I do have kind of a regret. Okay. So last time I called you to revise and regret not giving Chili's Chicken Crispers the correct name. Yeah. Did a little research in the meantime went to Chili's. They are called chicken crispers. So I'm not, to be clear, that wasn't wrong. But I thought that they had somewhere on the menu, the original chicken crispers, they had some modifying name. So you couldn't just order chicken crispers. You had to order the specific thing in order to get the original recipe that was that really fluffy batter coating on the outside. That is gone. It is not there. I can confirm it is no longer available on the menu. There is only the new and worse kind of chicken crispers. And I also saw when I looked into this a little more, a news report in, I think, January of 2023 that they were taking off the original. So I didn't even never get the chance to go back and try and see was the original really as good as the original. It's just, it's crushing. Like what? I don't even want to. What's the point? What is the point? What is the logic behind this change? I don't know. It makes me sad. It makes me sad too. So listeners, if any of you want to start a Twitter campaign to get the original chicken crispers back at Chili's, if you have that kind of influence, Leonardo DiCaprio, if you're listening, I think you might be able to work this out for us. I really don't think it's beyond the realm of 
possibility that Chili's could sponsor us. So if Chili's would like to sponsor us. Yes. And, and we will shill for you. We will whatever you want us to do. Um, and if that were to happen, then I would be an evangelist for the new recipe. <laughs> but until then, we're coming for you, Chili's. But, you know, it's that we we criticize Chili's because we love Chili's and we want to hold it to high standards. And what I had there was great. It was a fantastic lunch, but it was missing one key component. So Quick that's fun. all. Did, that's you, all that. did you have a margarita when you were there? I did not. I had a Diet Coke. What are you doing? What are you talking about? The Presidente Margarita, bro. Tyler, I love I love Diet Coke at Chili's too. <laughs> Fair enough. You got those. It was days. eleven a.m. Not oh. necessarily, but I just you know the the Diet Coke. It's a perfect pairing with Chili's, so that's that's the thing. I hear you. All right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, now that we've spent thirty minutes on paper news, <laughs> shall we get into the episode? Let's do it. Okay, so this is season three, episode 16, Phyllis's Wedding, and here is our summary. Phyllis regrets giving Michael a ceremony task. Dwight hunts for party catchers, party crashers, sorry. Pam sees her stolen ideas on display. Tyler, I've got got some issues with the summary. Yeah. One of them is that this breaks the more traditional form of having two parts separated by a semicolon this is three parts separated by two semicolons also second what's the thing about dwight read that part again dwight hunts for party crashers that's like the only real thing because like phyllis doesn't really regret michael like maybe she does but we don't ever see her that's not part of the plot and then Um, in terms of Pam and the stolen ideas, like, yeah, is it really part of the plot? Like, nothing, I mean, it is and it isn't, but, like, it doesn't, I don't know. Like, it seems more like Pam is struggling with her ambivalence about Jim more than anything yes. else. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's true. That does seem more core to the actual story. Should we what, start with the... What are your issues with the description? Well, I don't like the three part as much. I don't think oh, it's right, right. And what you're what you're saying, I don't think that these things necessarily capture it super well. Yeah. Same time, I don't have a revision ready to propose. But I do, I did wonder. And so maybe I'll just get to this question. Do you think Phyllis really stole Pam's wedding ideas? Okay, like, this is core. It's egregious. How would this happen? I do not understand. Okay, so either A, she intentionally stole it and thought that Pam wouldn't notice, say anything, or care, or she's a sociopath and, like, wanted her to notice and feel bad. But none of those seem super plausible. So then the second would be that she stole it unconsciously. Yeah. uh, Which like is also hard to believe but maybe easier but like the episode doesn't show and then the third which i kept thinking about is like how similar (laughs) like to what degree do all wedding dresses kind of look the same like to what degree yeah is saying like no these things are all our specific choices 
yeah, so I don't know. What was your take on that? It just seemed weird. I would have, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It seemed, it seemed like such an outrageous thing to do that it, uh, I don't know. Yeah. It seemed out, it seemed outrageous. Pam does show at the beginning her invitation and Phyllis's. So she gives us proof in that example that they are the same. I would have probably gone with your reading that maybe Phyllis sort of unconsciously stole them, you know, like picked them up sort of by infusion as you're seeing those things. And then you're like, oh, I like that idea. And then, you know, a version of it that's too close ends up showing up in your own flower arrangement or whatever. But I don't know, it seems weird for Phyllis to do. And I just don't know what to make of it. Have you ever found yourself doing that, by the way? Like kind of you like something that somebody has or does, but you don't consciously say like, oh, I'm going to go X. And then later. So my example of this is like I bought like Doc Martens, right? And Mm -hmm. the kind of Doc Martens I bought are like exactly the ones that Corey wears (laughs) and my other friend, Sam. And um, when they came over to our house and like took off their shoes, I was, and I had gotten mine and they're next to mine. And I was like, oh shit, (laughs) like, holy shit. Like, you know, and I was so sort of embarrassed, but then I was also like, I unconsciously must have seen those, liked them, Mm -hmm. them on them and then bought them. And and later I was like, oh God, that's so embarrassing. Um, So that's my only like analogy for that. I don't know. Yes. I totally think that that's the case too. And that I do that. And I think about the way you maybe pick up things that my friends say, you like Um, a particular way of wording something or a phrase or something like that. And then it kind of gets into your own language, for example. So I think all of this stuff is possible without intent. And I think maybe it just goes too far here in it being so exact right right if if she just liked it and selected it i mean i do think the show has been hinting at a kind of darker side of phyllis in a way um maybe that's too strong but like a more um a side that is more like selfish let's say Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and it kind of working against whatever stereotypical kind of ideas people might have about like middle-aged women you know who are supposed to be motherly quote unquote I mean Michael even calls her matronly here although that's more about appearance um and anything um but so I feel like the show's kind of playing with that like oh you think she's supposed to be like sweet but actually so she like kind of manipulates Michael into getting six weeks of vacation you know so maybe that's kind of what they're playing with here is hinting at like she's more canny than we would think and she's Mm -hmm. selfish um but like pam being upset about it i don't know is she upset or is she just kind of like bewildered what what was your take on her reaction hmm i think both yeah i think bewildered annoyed and as you described phyllis thing it's making me also rethink my perspective on it and would it actually just be 
the really smart thing to do to take all of Pam's ideas because it takes work to decide those things and to look at all your different options and yada, yada, yada. And so maybe Phyllis just made a really good, really efficient move and was like, Pam took all this office time doing wedding things and somebody better make some use of it. Do you think that weddings should be an expression of your personal like tastes and preferences? Like in some way, should the design reflect your self or no, it's more like a, uh, you know, prepackaged or, you know, conventional. It's like. Yeah. And are we just kind of imagining that it's a reflection of self anyway? Like what does, what do peach flowers fundamentally say about anybody's identity? And is, I guess, yeah, our wedding designs intellectual property? Are they, is it just that there are certain things that are out there available to put together in some combination and you, you know, highlight some colors rather than others and you choose the more expensive or the less expensive version of flowers and all that stuff. And yet in this case, uh, they like, or at least Roy and Pam's argument is that it is related to their personal history and memory. So Roy says, I don't normally, I normally don't notice these kinds of things. Sweating's really nice. The flowers and stuff, Phyllis has some great taste. And then he says, I know you're probably not going to remember this, but those color roses, I got you those color roses for our prom. Mm -hmm. And she says, I picked them, stole all my ideas. And I do like that the point of this scene, I think, is about Roy, like, noticing something and then saying, I wasn't too involved in the planning, apologizing. And I think it's a really interesting line when he says, you think this sucks for you. I was the one who actually wanted to get married. And yeah. maybe that underscores that character-wise, the reason it's upsetting to Pam isn't just about like intellectual property or personal <laughs> yeah. but about like, you know, a failed, quote unquote, failed. Uh, I shouldn't use that phrase. Uh, I don't know. A, an engagement that- That's how it feels, I think. Yeah, she feels you know, a broken off engagement that to her feels like a failure or a, or, or a loss. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, what color were the roses? I don't remember. I think they were, pe I think the colors were peach and blue. Okay. Which I guess are unique and specific, but still there is this part of me that was kind of like, yeah, how, 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 how much, if you're going to have a conventional wedding, to mm -hmm. what degree do you want each individual do you want to interpret each individual thing as a personal expression mm -hmm. because on the one hand i feel incredibly susceptible to that kind of idea mm -hmm. and and yet it is it can be so exhausting and oppressive to to think that like everything constantly needs to express you and your individuality yeah. because as you're saying like a lot of the things that quote unquote express us we sort of only retroactively say oh yeah no no no. that's i see myself in that but it's not right. like you know it's not like you were born identifying with white wedding dress or something like that you know yeah yeah cultural uh. image or norm or something like that so i don't know um maybe phyllis really just liberated herself from all yeah. of that by taking someone else's template and kind of saying 
fuck it. Like, I, I don't have to think so extensively about every single one of these things because we saw with, I really liked that conversation between Roy and Pam. And we saw in that the reminder of how much work Pam put into planning it, work that she did on her own. You're right. And Phyllis got out of that. Which, uh, that's an interesting point. Oh, man, you are really taking me on a journey here because <laughs> I I think I was predisposed to sort of be like, come on, Phyllis. And I but, was too. You took me on this journey, Tyler. You're kind of making this like feminist, socialist feminist argument, which is like, you know, <laughs> On the one hand, yes, she kind of exploited Pam's unpaid labor. Uh-huh. But is that much worse than Roy doing so? And yeah. in, in 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 a way, Pam's labor didn't go to waste. It it benefited Phyllis, saved her time, and um, yeah, as you're saying, kind of got her out of the cycle of patriarchal. Exp- yeah. you know ex- exploitation or whatever that yeah. is to assume however that bob vance wouldn't be bob vance advanced refrigeration wouldn't be heavily involved in the planning we don't know what do you think i don't think he'd be heavily involved probably not <laughs> <laughs> but we could ask is it actually is it worse for phyllis to use the labor of pam to her benefit than it is I say is yeah. So is that worse than the tradition of men marrying women who do all of the planning and they benefit from their labor? Maybe not. That is fascinating point. Maybe we've ended up on Team Phyllis here. And in a way, like I don't think I had realized it, but the narrative does essentially parallel those things. Like it does, even if it doesn't explicitly say Pam doesn't say you and Phyllis are just the same. <laughs> like it is the scene in which. Like he doesn't recognize it and then realizes mm. it. And it's by her telling him about Phyllis stealing, you know, um, yeah. that he becomes accountable for what he failed to do. But the more important question is, is he hot in this scene, in this episode? I need your take. Yeah, this is peak Roy for me. Peak Roy. Oh, he smolders. <laughs> He's great. His vulnerability his charm, the way he is sensitive and sad, but also funny, the way he's able to be sort of self-deprecating about it. Like the line you read when he says, yeah, you think it sucks for you. I was the one who actually wanted to get married. Um, Even as he is, I think, genuinely recognizing and apologizing for his lack of involvement in the planning of what would have been their wedding. I found it very sexy, uh, his um, depressive contrition. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Which may say more about uh, (laughs) my my appetites or whatever. Depressive contrition. Oh my god, such a great line. Um, But he, but it also is kind of sexy when he's like, uh, "I gave them twenty bucks." you know, to play Jewel. Um, and the yeah. way he says, you want to get out of here. Um, mm-hmm. it's, I would not say that it is, I would say there's a melancholia to it. Yeah. And I don't know how I feel about that, but um, but it really, it was a vibe for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so their song, we learn, is Jewel. 
you were meant for me. Yeah, he pay, you like you said, he pays the band $20 to play it. I also just thought that that was a very sweet Roy move. But what about the choice of this song? Isn't this song kind of a breakup song? Ah, yeah, it is. Because it's about, it's Jewel singing and the idea is that it's after a guy has left her, right? Yeah. Like she's home alone, making eggs. The towels on the floor. (laughs) Some of the lyrics are drifting slowly back to me. So it is the what was the word used? It's melancholic. It is. It is a melancholy kind of song. And it's you were meant for me, and I was meant for you. Not you are meant for me. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Present tense. I got my eggs and my pancakes too. I got my maple syrup. Everything but you. Um, Yeah. I kind of like it in my brand new place. Uh, dreams last for so long, even after you're gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just so, yeah, it's interesting that their song was a breakup song. Yeah. But at the same time, that song now almost seems more appropriate. Yeah, it does. Before, right? Um, and so is there connection then about rekindling something and getting back together? Or is it just sort of being together in the melancholy and in the sadness of that loss. Cause you always think of, or I guess I always thought of the jewel song as being one you kind of listen to alone and feel alone, but there's something really interesting about being in that together and dancing and having that sad love song together. This is helping explain a number of my breakups, uh, so I appreciate that because a number of my breakups, I feel like, you know, there were like, are will not, not will they, won't they, but like on again, off again, you know, kind of vibes. And, uh, and part of that was my inability to like let go, but also, or vice versa. But, mm-hmm. um, but like, I, I think that I thought of it as this, how to say this, like part of the thing that you are sharing at the end is the sadness of the ending and that that can feel like a connection, even Mm -hmm. if it's not the same thing as, um, yeah, yeah. like living a living bond or, or, or a relationship that has a future. So, but it's hard sometimes to see that it's, that that's actually what it is that you're like connecting over the loss because it yeah. kind of feels like, wait, maybe there's hope here or like, cause that's kind of the way I read the Pam Roy of it all is like, I think that they are lonely and they are stuck in Scranton and there's not a lot of prospects maybe, or at least that's the way the show represents it. And they have all this shared history. And so it's familiar and it's comfortable. So that's a magnetic pull. Yeah. But even more than that is the kind of like, man, doesn't it suck? And you mm-hmm. understand that, I don't know. I'm just re-articulating what you already said, but that really helps me understand some of my own breakups. Hmm. Well, where do you want to go, Tyler? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I have well, I have a number of questions for you, but one of them is, uh, do you have a song or have you ever had a song with people? Because that's what Roy is saying. This is our song. Do you have mm. a song? You know what? Not really. Do you and I have a song? I think 
Do I what? Do you and I have a song? We should. Yeah, let's make that happen. Let's have a song. Let's definitely have a song for ourselves. Um, we'll work on that. We can we can report back. Um, I don't really feel like I do. I, I think I have songs that I associate with particular people and at particular points in life. One of the ones I actually heard recently that I sort of feel most strongly is, you know, that I would walk 500 miles. Yeah. I would walk 500 more just to be the man who walks a thousand miles. So I listened to that song on a road trip with my aunt and uncle when I was a kid and their daughters, my cousins were really young and we were driving and eating M&Ms and having a good time. And so when I, that's one of those songs where when I hear that, it like takes me back to that minivan. Yeah really quickly so i might text my uncle for example and be like oh i just heard our song um but yeah that's kind of the main one that comes to mind this is a good question what about you do you have songs with people not really i mean i think similar to you i have songs that will throw me back to a time in my life or a particular mm -hmm. moment um and more than that i think there will be moments like I can remember one particular dinner that I was having with Jen and I remember some song came on and I was like, oh, we should, you know, it's like a really like important and lovely dinner. And I remember us sort of saying like, oh, we should remember this song or whatever. And then never yeah. did, you know, like, <laughs> I couldn't tell you what it was. So like, but I'm kind of glad for that. Like, it feels very like to, to have a song with your partner. I don't know. Oh God, I don't want to alienate any listeners. But the only time that I ever did that was kind of like, when you're cosplaying relationships in like middle school and high school or something, you know, <laughs> like I feel like when I think I feel like my middle school or high school girlfriend and I had a had a so we were like, is we should pick a song. This is our song. But of course, the song that we had was the song that everybody had, which was that Titanic song. Um, so I'm just revealing so much. You know? It all comes full circle. It all comes back to the booze cruise. <laughs> that really is the crux of our reading of the show. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, oh, Tyler, I love that so much. And to be clear, if anyone had liked me at the time the Titanic came out, you better believe I would have had that song with them. So it's easy to make fun of, but it was more about lack of opportunity and lack of desire. So much cooler. You would have had like a, it wouldn't have been Blink-182. It would have been like more, it would have been um, MXPX or something, something even more cool. I don't know. Uh all those guys, though, they always just sing about getting their hearts broken by mean girls. Like, that's the whole thing. So I think I think so much of my growing up music, too, was I guess this is maybe where you can end up with Jewel is if what you listen to is always just breakup songs. <laughs> that's the entire genre of your listening, I guess. It limits you. It's kind of interesting to me when a breakup or when a song. Okay. Like, because I think the Jewel song is a good example of this. Like, the melody of it and the emphasis of the line, I was meant for you and you were meant for me, that, if you're only listening to that, that actually does sound super romantic. And, mm -hmm. you, you know, so, like, I'm always kind of interested in, like, what people do with a song versus what it actually means. And yeah. which, which, which one is more valid or real? Yeah. 
who can say or who cares um mm -hmm. But then also just like the idea of a song that sound like I don't know there have definitely been songs where I'm like this is so liberating and then you read the lyrics and I'm like oh shit this is really <laughs> backwards or oh this is a badass breakup song and then it's like oh wait no it wasn't a breakup song or whatever I don't know just yeah. like tone versus tone, yeah totally I guess guys um, uh, I, I love a lot of songs that are very very sexist. <laughs> well, I feel like canon you're canonically sexist. I feel like that's a thing we that's canon too. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like if we didn't say it's the podcast where two literature professors, blah blah blah, it'd be like the podcast where Megan hates women. <laughs> like that's you would seriously think by from if you just if you looked at the lyrics of the songs I was listening to all the time in junior high and high school, you would think that I hate girls. It it's it's not great, but I still I still have all my my CDs and I stand by it. Um, but this movie brings us to Scrantonicity. Oh, we have to talk about that. But just quick defense of young Megan and current Megan uh -huh. from the person who just canceled you. But quick defense, <laughs> I so, sort of the whole culture is sexist and especially the music of the 90s. Uh, it's true. It's true. Oh, it's, it's I true. mean, it's like fish to a, or you know, water to a fish or whatever yeah. that, you know throw a rock you're gonna hit sexist lyrics it's not really your choice totally totally i can't just listen to sleater kinney all of the time <laughs> just a lot of the time yeah most of the time but, to, balance, okay. to balance the others <laughs> um okay wait yeah scrantonicity your thoughts on scrantonicity scrantonicity here's my idea don't you think it would be great if somebody started a Scrantonicity cover band. That's a brilliant idea. The cover band of the cover band. Um, I think they're pretty great. Me too. I really like, so my favorite part is when Kevin, so, so Scrantonicity has come on the stage and Kevin has just gotten this announcement that he has to read at the wedding. So this is at the reception and Uncle Al has seemingly wandered off. Actually, Dwight has kicked him out of the wedding. So Kevin says on stage, he's sitting at his drums and he says into the microphone, attention, everyone, attention, please. I'm supposed to ask if anyone has seen Uncle Al. He is old and has brown eyes and dementia. His family is very concerned. It is a very serious situation. And then immediately he starts singing, Roxanne. And it is just such a funny transition. It's great. It is great. I, yeah, all I had in my notes was LOL, that serious situation. <laughs> like he had to underline that and then sing. Yeah, it's a serious situation. It's funny too how he says, I'm supposed to ask. Like, <laughs> Right. You know, this is this is not a part of the important agenda, but I've been, I don't know, <laughs> instructed to do this, and so I will do it. Now, is he the drummer and the lead singer? Is that your understanding? Yes, that is my understanding of Scranton City's structure. Difficult? Isn't that a difficult thing in music? I don't know. Sorry, isn't that a what thing? Like a difficult thing. Oh, I would think so. I guess it depends how aggressively you play the drums. I think there's a really wide range of physical involvement and like how much breath and body it takes you and that kind of thing. You know, how hard you're 
banging them and how fast and all that. So I imagine there's a version of it where it's as easy to do as playing guitar and singing, which I, by the way, think is impossible, but also a version where it maybe becomes not even really possible. Um, well, if any musicians want to write in with their thoughts on drumming and and singing, but uh, my other question for you about Scrantonicity was their outfits. What did you think of their attire for the wedding? Oh, Tyler, that's a great question, and I can't remember what they're wearing at all. Does Kevin have his usual hat that he always wears for Scrantonicity? Yeah, he's got his hat, and I believe he's changed from his wedding suit. Oh, yeah, because he was, yeah. Yeah, and, like, I think the guitarist has got, um, almost looks like a bowling shirt, that kind of, the wide stripes, vertical kind of look. Yeah, I feel like that's always got kind of a ska vibe. Yes, you're right. Got a little, little touch of that. Is it appropriate? Is it appropriate for Kevin to wear the hat? I just, I mean, okay. So I, I'm going to have a lot that I want to discuss about people's um, outfit choices for the wedding. Um, I have a lot of questions for you there. But yeah, I definitely was looking at them thinking, are they too informal or do they not fit the vibe of the wedding? I mean, on the one hand, that's, of course, like maybe part of the joke. Um, but at the same time, I also was just kind of not sure what the protocol is there. I've only been to one wedding where there was a live band, um, and it was pretty awesome, but it was a, they were kind of like a, like a, like a swing band to a degree. Actually, there were two, ah. two weddings I've been to with live bands and they both were kind of swing oriented bands anyway. Mm -hmm. So everybody was dressed in suits and it kind of made sense with their style of music. But it wouldn't yeah. really make sense. Anyway. This is a really good question that I've never thought about. Because, there, yeah, there's wedding attire and then there's being in your regular band attire. And it does seem like since all the way back when Pam was watching videos to try to find a wedding band and came across the Scrantonicity video, they have been trying to break into the wedding industry. But it does seem like if you're a wedding band, you dress a little bit differently than if you're just, you know, a band who occasionally plays in a bar or something like that. That's a good point. They definitely, they definitely don't have that down. So I just, I just looked at it. Kevin's got the hat. He has a black t-shirt. He has a vest. Yes. So I think that they're definitely in, we're playing with our band mode. Whether that's the right mode for a wedding, I don't know. And is it one of those questions of authenticity where you're like, you know, we got to be our most Scrantonicity selves and we got to bring the whole Scrantonicity aura to the stage. Here's another Scrantonicity question. Are they all Scrantonicity songs or maybe I'd have to go figure out what would be the particular one. But is Scrantonicity music basically Jim and Pam's song? Because when Pam was watching the videos, when she had to look at the videos to find the wedding band, Roy wasn't doing it with her. Jim was doing it with her. Okay. And they were together when they discovered, discovered that Kevin was in this band. Hmm. So you're saying, oh, oh, I see what you're saying. So you know how you, we were talking about songs that we have associated yeah. 
particular people and they're not necessarily ones where you chose it and we're like oh this is going to be our romantic song but it's a song where you shared something and have a memory yes i want to go back and find out what song was on when they discovered kevin was in scrantonicity that's a great question that'll be jim and pam's song i think but this is giving a brilliant like extra layer to why why might pam feel aggrieved or whatever agitated about this attending her own wedding but not being the center of it um is that to some degree she planned that wedding with jim and consciously or unconsciously imagined what it might be like to be marrying him and so this is a kind of like double reminder, right? Like she definitely seems agitated about the wedding and that might be an expression of the anguish she feels seeing Jim with Karen, which we see when he's dancing. It would be really interesting if the song that they're dancing to when she looks over at him and he looks at her and then she leaves the room is one of the Scranton City songs they watched. That would be brutal. I don't think it was though. It can't be because it's more of a sweet song. Yeah, I can't remember what the song was, but it doesn't feel like it was that. But yeah, you're right because we get lots of longing glances from Pam looking at Jim, especially that one where where he's dancing with Karen and she's sitting and yeah, um, watching. Well, since we're talking about Scrantonicity's outfits, now is the time for me to ask you the all-important question, who's the best dressed and who's the worst dressed at this wedding? And if you need to, you know, kind of talk us through, you don't have to make a decision offhand, it's okay, but yeah, what were your thoughts on people's outfit choices? This is so great, Tyler, and I, I really wish you had prepared me for this because now I'm really feeling the need for a review. Mm. But let me start. Let me so I, I wanna I wanna retain the right to go back on this because I might change my mind. But I think I want to suggest that Angela is the best dressed. Oh gasp. I love Angela's outfit. So let me describe. She's wearing it is all it is light blue, matching top and skirt. The top, it's a jacket it's very conservative it's dwight says that she looks as beautiful as the queen of england um but it's buttoned up to the top and it's got this sort of scallop cut um where the buttons go but the best part she's wearing this little oh what is it called um pill pill case hat what do you call that kind of hat pillbox pillbox hat yes she's wearing a pillbox hat one of those little kind yep. of flat circles and I just think it's the cutest thing I think Angela looks great in that hat <laughs> <laughs> I don't disagree I did think that's a look you know a look, yeah um, so I did think she was stylish I thought it was eye-catching uh-huh. like Kelly she wasn't <laughs> taking uh anything away from the bride um per Kelly se <laughs> wearing white so I, I i just gotta read into the record kelly is wearing a white dress and meredith points it out and says i thought you weren't supposed to wear white to a wedding kelly says i know but there was an emergency and then it cuts right to an interview with her and she says i look really good in white 
And can I be honest? She does. Like she looks. She does great. look good in white. Um, that whole outfit is awesome. Yeah. Uh, and what a funny joke! I thought. Yeah, it was great. Other out. What other outfits should we consider? What stood out to you, Tyler? Okay, I thought Pam's hair fantastic. I thought her earrings on point. Mm-hmm. I love the color of her dress. And I thought the dress was excellent. So Pam is like for me, best dressed. Pam was looking, Pam was looking great. So for for description, for the visuals, she's her hair is it's kind of parted on the side and sort of loosely curled. I and love a loose curl. This love. little pin that's holding a front piece of it back. And I agree, it looks it looks beautiful. The dress, what is it? Kind of a shiny brown V-neck. She looks great. Totally agree. I found the, the use of browns in the episode kind of a little confusing, partly because I'm colorblind. So I was like, is it green? Is it brown? Like, what is it? But yeah, I think it's brown. Now, my related question to that is, is Roy, I had texted you this because I couldn't determine, is Roy wearing a brown suit or is he wearing like a sport coat with pants that are a different color? Were you able to determine? I did look back at this. I, I think... It, it looks to me, it's a little hard to tell. It looks to me like a sport coat, one that's that sort of thicker material that's yeah. kind of soft. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like not yeah. velvet, but a little velvety. Maybe like a corduroy, maybe? I couldn't, almost like a corduroy, but not corduroy. Right. You know what I mean? Like not with the lines in it, but that yeah. it looks kind of like that type of material. Like I, I would like to feel his fabric. But I, I could never get a really good view of the pants. I really thought this was a misfire for Roy. I thought, <laughs> I thought this a misfire, a real misfire. The striped shirt, the no, striped shirt, that was yeah. just a mis- That was tragic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nothing. And brown tie. It looks like so. It's a striped shirt. It looks like it's got a light blue, white, and light brown stripe. And then a brown tie, if I can tell. And it's all seen with sort of low lighting. So it's a little hard to get it exact, the one I'm looking at here. But yeah. Did he look better than Toby? Yes. And Toby, come on, my man. You are wearing what you wear to work. It just was. Toby is wearing exactly what he wears to work. That kind of light brown jacket and uh, a grayish shirt. It was rough, I thought. I did not love the... Okay, so the groomsmen, including Michael, are wearing, like, kind of vests and ties that match. And I really didn't like that choice. I wanted the tie distinct from the vest, but that's just a personal preference. I did like the color of that. And I thought Michael looked chic, I have to say. Bob Vance, great look. Um, But I don't know if you can guess my worst dress of the wedding. But it's Jim Halpert. This motherfucker couldn't comb his hair for the wedding. <laughs> and he's wearing a skinny tie. And I love a skinny tie. I think, and in that way, he's like ahead of the curve. However, the way that it is tied, it looks stringy. Like he has not tied it correctly at his neck. And then he just looked un- disheveled and unkempt. And I, I really thought he, he was, it was rough for Jim. I thought. 
know, Tyler, I, I don't know that I agree with this assessment. It's tight. It's not that skinny. <laughs> skinny ties go. He's got, I'll say, he's got the kind of white shirt where the buttons, you know, the, the collar buttons down. But he's wearing a black suit with a white shirt and a black tie. I kind of like this. I, I kind of think Jim is looking good here. I yeah. think if Roy, just imagine if Roy had worn this outfit. I just thought it was too drab, if, I, if I'm being honest. I don't know. It just, I mean, you could go for Dwight, sure. And uh, uh, obviously he's wearing a tuxedo. That's ridiculous. Um, but it has got tails, doesn't it? So I Dwight, I think, is one of the best dressed here. I agree. He looked fabulous. And his hair looked, I thought his makeup was <laughs> Stanley wearing a bow tie, ridiculous. But <laughs> I kind of appreciated the choice of a red bow tie. I think it's red. And I thought that was a nice, a nice choice. It's some unique flair coming from Stanley. Do you have a worse dressed then? A worse dressed. I don't. I think I need to, I think I need to give it more review. I guess one other thing I would say, Bob Vance with his blue tie, it makes his blue eyes really pop in a way that I had never noticed them before. I thought Karen looked really cute. Um trying to trying to find a picture here just as a refresher so I can maybe describe her dress um i was pretty satisfied with everybody's clothes except i gotta say except toby i think you're i think you're right about that toby toby is worst dressed so it's kind of a light brown jacket his shirt looks like it has a bit of a stripe to it he's got a wide tie he looks exactly like he does at work except I did like, so Toby has this date yeah, um, and the, his date catches the bouquet when Phyllis throws it at the end to see who is going to be the next person to get married. And she catches it. She runs over and kisses Toby. And then it goes to the interview with Toby and he looks so happy. Oh. And when he goes, Toby, yeah, it's very endearing. So I thought that was a very strong Toby moment, even though he was the worst dressed. I agree. I agree. His smile. It was nice to see him smile. It was nice to see him smile. It was, yeah. Toby Toby deserves a win every now and then. Now I'm going to continue to avoid the core of this episode because it makes my soul cringe. Everything the core that, being Michael Scott. Yes. Everything that Michael does is so like painful and skin crawly to me i had a hard time watching this episode and i put, oh. off, I put it off until the last possible minute as you know because i was like uh i didn't watch it yet can i have like 30 extra minutes like oh uh. so anyway before we get Heather, to i'll just say though i i think michael is the redeeming episode the redeeming factor of this episode what oh. i think he carries it you are you're just you just want to be controversial right is that is this just you're just like no. bombs is that what this is we're uh, gonna get we'll get into it we'll get into it um okay well so before we jump to michael because there's just not much else to distract with the opening uh cold open i want to talk yes. about the pavlovs 
uh, dog situation. Um, yes. Tell us what Jim does to Dwight. Okay. So uh, basically like Jim reboots his computer. And so we hear the windows operating system, like uh, bell or whatever the, 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 the noise that it makes when it uh, boots back up. Um, and every time that that happens, uh, Jim offers Dwight an Altoid. And so for our listeners who don't remember Altoids or windows, uh, I don't know. Do we have any young, youngish? Uh, anyway, uh, but whatever. So he offers him a mint. Um, but Altoids were really big in the they were really big. early 2000s. And I remember everybody like in high school, like having Altoid tins. Yes, they were really. So that that was the case on the East Coast. That was the case in the Midwest. Wow. It, it Some Americans loved Altoids. So Jim says in school, we learned about this scientist who trained dogs to salivate at the sound of a bell by feeding them whenever a bell rang. For the last couple of weeks, I've been conducting a similar experiment. And so the, the joke sort of comes when he does the bell and Dwight holds out his hand. But Jim at that point has not said, do you want an Altoid? And Dwight is confused and it's totally unconscious. And he says, my mouth tastes so bad all of a sudden. Um, yeah. So what was your take on this? Did you see any resonance between this and the rest of the episode? Yeah. What did you think? Hmm. I was excited to hear what you, how you would connect this one to the rest of the episode because it seems so random. I think this is an incredibly creative prank. Yes. It's, he really has to play the long game for this. It's testing out an experiment. I think it's super creative, very interesting, harmless, and fun. So I like this as a prank. In terms of if I'm trying to look for a connection, I think it's going to end up taking us to Michael because it's about the way that thing, something, things that happen and maybe things that happen in a pattern start to prime your reactions so that your reaction in the future doesn't have to do with the, um, I don't want to put this. So it's like your reaction in the future is affected by this association that's been created in the past that then more comes out in the present when there is that stimulus. So I think this is probably going to be related to Michael coming to a wedding and what has Michael's past, what have his past associations with weddings done that then comes out in the time of this wedding? So like the ding of the windows rebooting generates Dwight's hand going out and him salivating and having the bad taste in his mouth. What does the wedding generate from Michael and why? Mm. I love this because, you know, the best that I could do was a more general, but I suppose very similar point, but more generally kind of like when we started our, our initial conversation about like our is our Phyllis's choice is conscious or not hmm. like to what degree is wedding a kind of, you know, preset cultural menu as it were that hmm. we think of as an expression of our interior special unique selves, but is actually essentially a set of kind of consumer um, and cultural social associations that we mm -hmm. decide reflect us, but 
you know, but don't, or, or that, that they, we come to associate them. So that was the best that I could kind of come up with. But as you're talking though, I mean, the, the, the metaphor of bad taste in one's mm. mouth is really interesting, you know, like what mm. is a bad taste in your mouth and huh. what is in good taste and in bad taste is like, like part of what is so cringy to me is Michael's just awful taste and not being tasteful. Um, the other thing too, is the Altoid is iconically white. And I kept thinking about white wedding, um, you know, mm. and, and the whiteness of the Altoid, but now I'm really stretching our English major, uh, uh, such, um, Tyler, I am so struck by your point about good taste and bad taste and yeah, how it connects to all of those desires and things associated with the wedding because good taste or bad taste feels like a visceral reaction and yet if we go to this Pavlov's dog thing it's manipulate we're manipulated into it so the thing that is this visceral reaction that could be desire or disgust I'm thinking about good taste when Michael talks about the wine I'm gonna have to read that into the record in, in yeah. a minute yeah but things that they feel like this natural reaction but all of that has been manipulated and all of that has been controlled and kind of implanted into Dwight and into us yeah the Pavlov's um uh, whatever I- image or metaphor like it's kind of interesting how it plays out because in in this scene it's like classically right okay so the bell rings and the dog salivates so it's desire mm-hmm. right and that's kind of what we're getting you know is the like stimulus response as you said um yeah so the expectation and then the desire for the mint but what's interesting to me about it is that dwight interprets suddenly reinterprets his default mouth taste or or whatever <laughs> as bad like so what yeah. one what a second ago was normal is now like uncomfortable and not like doesn't seem right and so it's not just that he wants the mint, but it's like his his mind has reinterpreted his body in a way mm. that would it, that would like sort of justify the need. It would justify the desire as a need by mm. saying, "Oh, now my mouth tastes bad," but nothing's changed, right? It's the interpretation <laughs> of the mouth state or something. Yeah. Um, you know, it seems like the songs are also similar to the bell because the thing that works about the bell for the dog is that it's initially it's associated with getting fed and getting food so it's something that is positive and desirable and that feels good and is satisfying and all of that so that then just the bell makes you ready for that or feel that need for it and so it seems like the song too like the jewel song you were meant for me sets off this whole set of feelings that are not really about the song itself but that got that association with the song right right and like as you're saying these are all these are unconscious like that's why i was struck when you said it's um did you say harmless or i wrote it down oh yeah dwight's or i mean uh jim's prank here at harmless yeah yeah i think that was the word you used and i was struck by that because i was like i kind of like i agree in the sense that there is this is not i don't know there's no long-term effect or whatever and yet it seems so insidious 
But yeah, maybe, that's uh, very true. What's insidious about it, I suppose, is how it reveals how open to suggestion any of us are. Like yes. we and you know, when later in the episode it's repeated essentially by Jim saying, you know, oh, I wish I had good investigative skills because um uh we need to catch wedding crashers and Dwight falls for it. It's the same thing. And yet that doesn't bother me in the way that the mint bothers me. And mm. I because the mint is so basic and fundamental and reminds me of my own openness to suggestion. Mm. Um, and uh the limits of my like perception or something like that. Uh Oh yeah, that's I, that's making me that's making me really rethink because I felt like the Altoid one was harmless, and the one about the wedding crashers is more setting Dwight up to both miss the wedding and publicly humiliate himself. Although it's really fun for Dwight. So yeah. when he says when he says so maybe this was actually kind of a gift from Jim because. When Dwight says to Michael, I have to bounce you, it gives me no pleasure. And then as he turns back to the camera, he kind of raises ah. his eyebrows and smiles, and it's clear that it is a pleasure. But you're right, the mint thing, it is it is insidious to think about how you can do that to people. I actually kind of did this to myself. Um to get myself to run in the winter. So it gets really cold here in the winter and I like I I like running and in the past in the winter I would just give up. So what I did one winter is I started pairing it with listening to this podcast that I absolutely love called S Town and it's a series it's only like I don't know 7 or 9 episodes or something like that but I love it so much I can listen to it over and over again. So I just paired running with listening to S Town because there's something really enjoyable and comforting and engaging about it. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to try and build up this different association in my mind. And I've never stopped running in the winter since. It That's, worked. But you no longer listen to that podcast when you run in the winter? Only sometimes. But yeah, I do it every time. But I used to, it would be like, I'm only listening to that when I am running in the winter but if i can do it to myself it means other people can also be doing it to me at all times right 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 yeah that's really interesting um i love your point about dwight's kind of uh pleasure in policing yeah and i think about that a lot like the kind of people like people who get off on enforcing rules uh-huh whether it's cops or like teachers or um whatever, Karens, white people, I don't know, like, that I, I feel like we don't talk often enough about kind of the pleasure of being the enforcer. And mm. that, that is, you know, I mean, I think it's a really dangerous and and insidious to I know, I keep using that word, but um, kind of thing and in in, 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 like, and by pretending that it's like, object, I'm just I'm just enforcing the rules and I'm doing that because it's in everybody's best interests or I really want the class to be good or something like kind of erases not just the power dynamic, but the like, whatever egotistical joy that one takes in being the one who enforces the rules rather than being subject to them. Hmm. And so anyway, I was thinking about that with Michael, I mean, with Dwight, but I felt that 
Dwight's kind of, I'm special now and I have a role to play. Yeah. Michael's desire. He literally wants the high point of the wedding to be himself. Yes. Keeps inserting himself at every point. And it is so painful. And I think the reason it's painful to me is because we all, quote unquote, know the conventions. We know the associate, we know what's expected at a wedding. Know what you don't do. And like, he doesn't care like he's gonna do it anyway and make it all oh his his narcissism is so painful to me in this episode (laughs) his narcissism is so delightful to me in this episode delightful delightful i love i love everything about it i feel like there are a lot of examples we're gonna have to talk about so let's start with one of the early ones this is so right after the opening part, the first time when it's at the wedding, um, they're outside, Phyllis and her parents and her sisters, the bridesmaids are all up there on the church steps to have their picture taken. And Michael is up there. And I felt like the photographer just handled Michael so brilliantly. So he says, okay, for this next one, everyone hop out, just Phyllis and dad actually let's bring mom back in and the sisters and you and you and you great and so (laughs) it was just such a savvy I guess way of trying to get Michael out of the picture but in a way to try to not hurt his feelings and make it look like he's just you know trying out some different things but then Michael really quickly pops back in and he climbs up and he's kind of behind the bridesmaids in front of that big pillar. Um, oh, it's, I, I will first painful, but secondly, yeah. I mean, I wrote also in my notes, like that photographer is clever, like very clever. Yeah. Um, savvy, as you said. Yeah. Very, very clever photographer. What part of Michael do you think makes you, we're going to have to talk about Michael's past with weddings, of course, but before we get there, Were there other moments that stood out to you that felt especially painful for you to confront? Yeah, let's just make a list of them. So we've got, uh, okay, we've got the photographer thing. Then we've got him um, uh, going to, uh, what's her face, Um, Phyllis, and saying, you know, you look as beautiful as you did on the day, whatever you started under Mifflin. And she's like, it was sweet, just like when you said it outside. So he's like repeating (laughs) the same things. Like when he sees... Who's the guy that he pushes in the wheelchair? Um, this is dad. Yeah. So he says to him, like, a lady killer or something like that. And he rolls his eyes and you get the impression that he's, like, saying canned things. You know, there's mm-hmm. that. Then there's um, trying to give Phyllis advice about sex on the wedding night. He <laughs> says, are you set on this hairstyle? Um, and, like, wants to adjust it to fix a, what he calls a bald patch. He clearly farts in her presence and then denies that he has farted. Um, I have another theory of that, but... Fair enough. Let's discuss. Uh, uh, Then um, the part that, like, kills me is... Well, this doesn't kill me. Before that, he... he, uh, Phyllis's dad gets out of the wheelchair and then Michael drags it sideways (laughs) down the aisle. That's just funny, but the part that fucking crushes me at the core of this is the you know saying ladies and gentlemen allow me to present for the very first time 
you know, Mr. and Mrs. Bob Vance or whatever he says, you know, and he says it at the wrong fucking time. Uh, and like, so I recently, I think the last podcast I mentioned officiating a wedding, Corey's wedding, and and I had to say something along those lines. And mm-hmm. every time I kept thinking about this moment in the episode and like, what if I say it at the wrong time? What if I say it in the wrong way? Uh, and then... Oh God, the, 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 he starts to give like a best man speech <laughs> unsolicited and he populates it with cliches from the dictionary, which I know you love to be <laughs> Webster's defines wedding as like the soldering of two metals or whatever. Cause he misread welding for wedding. <laughs> so it's just, I guess it's like not following the rules, making it all about himself, and like kind of at, even at the point of being consciously made to see that it is not all about him persisting anyway and saying in front of the whole wedding, like, I, you kind of boned me on Phyllis's dad. Doesn't he say that or something like that? And you owe it to me. And he boned me, but he does say, what is the thing he says? That everybody, it's basically like everybody thought you were easy. Oh, about, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awful. Awful. Rider. He calls her easy rider. Easy uh, rider. That's it. Yeah. Uh, when he takes the thing. Oh, I guess I, I, I inserted it in my head. He says, I think you owe me on this. I thought he said you boned me. <laughs> <laughs> Either way. Uh, I didn't say anything when Phyllis's dad upstaged me. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm like, my skin is crawling. Oh, Lord. Okay. Get people like this. People like this are in my family. Like, it's killing <laughs> It kills me. Oh. We have so, a lot of, okay. we have a lot of things to talk about, but let me, yeah. on the note of, <laughs> on the note of people being like this, I do have to share one story. Yes. This was a a wedding that I attended and the father of the groom before the wedding, just to give you a little bit of context on this guy, he said to the bride's brother, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are minnows and there are sharks. You're a minnow and I'm a shark. So you can just take that. as you will, as context for this dad. So then we are at the wedding ceremony and it was a beautiful wedding, beautiful, beautiful wedding. But as they are all up there, the bride and groom are up there and they're standing and they're looking at each other. And I'm looking at the bridesmaids on the one side and the groomsmen on the other side. And I noticed this dad is in the lineup of groomsmen and so I went and I looked at the program that listed who are the bridesmaids who are the groomsmen he was not one of them he inserted himself like Michael does up into the lineup of groomsmen at this wedding and it was the greatest thing I've ever seen it gave me so much joy because when I was real when I realized he was there I was like oh my god we're having a Michael Scott wedding moment and it's now one of my favorite wedding memories of all time 
I don't know if I've mentioned this on the pod. So if I have, stop me. But the uh, I will not belabor it. Like I'll just tell a short version. But um, we go to um, uh, somebody's wedding, <laughs> and uh, and this person's uh, they kind of had like a non not more of a hippie ish kind of non traditional but sort of spiritual ceremony. And the officiant basically says. Um, now what we'd like to do is to invite anybody who feels like called to come up and say a few words about the bride or the groom. And so people on the groom side are going up one by one, you know, and they're like saying, you know, brief, lovely things primarily about the groom. And, uh, I'm like, oh my God, is nobody going to go up for the bride or whatever? And I'm kind of like looking around like somebody should, right? You know, and then on the other hand, I'm like, this needs to end. Like there was no end point, you know? And so then this guy goes up and he's like, I'm the bride's like chiropractor (laughs) and like, and, and kind of positions himself as her, her like healer or whatever. And he starts talking about like, when I met her, she had all of these like IBS issues and I, and it's, and she was dating this awful guy before, you know, and it through our healing process, it's been, you know, it was so like narcissist. It was like, basically like I helped you become, I helped her like get over and manifest this new life or whatever. Yeah. But it just kept going and everybody kept looking at each other. Like, and I mean, like five minutes, seven minutes like (laughs) skin crawling you know and at a certain point he finally stopped and the officiant was like okay well I think now let's move forward and I was like oh thank god but like it was so insane and cringy and like to talk about her ex but like to frame it as his his kind of special insight that enabled her to become the person that she is today I was just like, oh God, somebody kill me. Um, um, wow. Anyway, so. Good so time. between us, we have seen multiple men who were not a part of the wedding and not getting married make themselves the somehow the center of it, the yeah. main act, the highlight of the wedding. <laughs> when Michael says, I was supposed to be the highlight of the, the wedding. Highlight, yeah. There is no highlight. So, so let's get to it. What do you think? So, let me run, let me just run through some things that I love. When Michael, let me let me just describe the same things you described, but in a little bit of a different way. So, first of all, when he goes back into that room where where Phyllis is getting ready, and he says, Oh, I should get the script. I'm not gonna remember it exactly. Oh, yeah, I think he says, Phyllis, did you pass wind? Isn't that what he is that how he puts it? Broke wind, maybe? Broke wind. Did you break wind? Here's my theory. I don't think it was Michael because he keeps talking and then he kind of pauses and he says, oh, that is pungent. I think it was the bridesmaid. She she walked out. She is really unhappy with Michael. She is a perfect illustration of that saying, if looks could kill. When she... When as she walks out, she gives him this evil look, and I think it was her. I don't think Michael was responsible for that. Next item: when Michael is when he walks the father down the 
aisle with pushing the wheelchair and then Albert gets up first of all Michael his hand comes right out and he tries to push him back down um <laughs> but then when Albert gets up Michael looks back at the camera and says this is bullshit it is so funny but as he continues walking down the aisle he takes no advantage of the fact that the wheelchair has wheels yes it's like it's primary thing I don't know why he does this, but he doesn't push it. He like flops it, you know, kind of from side to side. And then he drags it behind him. So it is so noisy and everything in the room seems so still and silent aside from him. The way, so he just, he manages to bring so much drama to it. This is the kind of thing that I would love to see at a wedding. And then he does the thing that I have seen. And that was inserting himself in to the lineup of groomsmen. The way he walks up the stairs one at a time, you know, he does like one foot and then brings oh. the other foot to the same stair. Next foot, second foot up to the same stair. And then just wedges himself between the other two groomsmen. He brings such gravity and such formality to it, particularly in the way that he walks. And so I really, really like that. And <laughs> it's just so funny when he does the ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you for the first time as a couple, Mr. and Mrs. Bob Vance. When you look to, I love watching at those times the groomsmen's faces. It looks back. I think the camera there is really good too. How it shows Michael making that loud announcement, and then it cuts to look at the people in the crowd, and it's just silence. And the pews are kind of creaking, and you can hear people breathing a little bit. Oh. And Michael's like, "Shh," like he's saying "shit," um, and he steps back in place. It's so funny. I don't understand how you don't love this. Oh God, it's skin crawling. It's <laughs> turning my stomach. Like you re-narrating it is making me suffer. Even when I put this positive spin? I, that you thought it was funny. Like that's your spin. <laughs> you're, you're what just... about that it's well done? Okay. What about it's, it's the great. sense of occasion and seriousness? Nothing. I mean, it is... It's it's really good writing and comedy, but like, oh, it, it cringed me. It like <laughs> it makes me want to shrink and hide. Um, that moment afterwards when everybody's kind of quiet and just proceeds. Oh, like everybody's patience is amazing. And oh man, when Bob Vance is wrestling with the microphone, oh god. Oh yeah, his speech. Let me read into the record, Michael's <laughs> speech. Must we? Must we? <laughs> we must. Sorry, it's kind of it's kind of a pleasure for me to see you squirm like this. Oh, so Michael gets up. Randy has just finished his speech, and he ends on a note that feels to me like very typical, the very typical mode of a bad wedding speech, where he says, "You know, and Phyllis, you're a great woman and a terrific bowler, or something like that." That's just not funny but supposed to be funny and I found that off-putting I didn't find Michael off-putting so this is Michael's speech he says thank you Randy that was great thank you thank you very much hi I'm Michael Scott and for the next 40 minutes I'm going to be your tour guide through the lives of Phyllis Blampin and Bob Vance 
one of the great seemingly impossible love stories of our time. Jesus. The fact that he has allotted himself 40 minutes when he has not been asked to do this is incredible. <laughs> he says, my name is Michael Scott. Webster's Dictionary defines wedding. And here's your dictionary definition as the fusing of two metals with a hot torch. If I can give people one bit of writing advice and never begin with the dictionary definition, but what a great way for the show to put a twist on that very cliched, very boring way of introducing anything to have him look up the wrong word. Um, then he, it cuts to him. He's saying, to quote from the Princess Bride, marriage, however they say that, that Princess Bride kind of famous speech. And then it cuts to interview. So he's had three starts already. He has three times said that he's Michael Scott. So he said, for, hi, I'm Michael Scott. Before he says he's going to be the tour guide for 40 minutes. Then he says, my name is Michael Scott before the Webster's Dictionary definition. Then he says, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Michael Scott before he goes into the Princess Bride voice. So he's basically given himself three wind-ups so far. And then is when it cuts to his interview and he says the most important part of the speech is the opening line. When time is not a factor, I like to try out three or four different ones. So within that speech, he's already tried out three different ones. And then it goes back to him giving the speech and he has a fourth one. Phyllis and Bob, their celebrity couple name would be Flob. You look at her. She's kind of matronly today, but back in high school, I swear her nickname was Easy Rider. Now, as for Bob, Bob Vance, and he's transitioning. He's like going to talk about Bob Vance at work or something. Um, but I just think Michael often has a very specific approach to something, a specific theory of, say, the work presentation or the speech. And I think that this is unique and really interesting when time is not a factor. Try three or four different opening lines. Are you gonna you're gonna advise that to your students? That's uh that's gonna be your play. Actually, yes. In the drafting process, try three or four different ones. Don't show up at a wedding and give three or four different ones. <laughs> Try three or four times. That way you can cut out your dictionary definition and you can cut out, you know, two other things. Now, while you've been unfolding this um, defense of mm -hmm. uh, what some might call funny and others might, might call horrific behavior, um, I've been trying to answer a question for myself. Okay. I'm doing a little bit of research. I'm currently looking at the Journal of Pediatrics. Um, and just trying to understand the degree to which a child wetting themselves during the day would be uh, a kind of symptom of trauma or yeah, I looked into this a little bit too. oh did you okay all right because we've got to get to the heart of it all and of michael's acting out which is uh that he's only ever been to one other wedding so he says you might be yes. surprised to learn that i've only been to one other wedding it's actually a very cute story my mom was marrying jeff note the phrasing there by the way by the way not my mom and jeff were getting married or my yeah. mom and stepdad mm -hmm. mom is the subject and 
uh, anyway. Um, yeah, good. And they asked me to be ring bearer. I was understandably emotional and somehow my pants became wet. Uh, so then there's the video of Mike, young Michael screaming, I hate you. Now it's unclear to whom he is screaming this. It's an interesting question. Long story short, Jeff's dog ended up as ring bearer. And the irony is that after the ceremony, that dog peed on everything and nobody said boo. So he was replaced by a dog, certainly, but specifically Jeff's dog. Yeah. Uh, a metaphor for his own replacement and displacement by Jeff, perhaps, uh, within his parental relation with his mother. Mm -hmm. But yeah, what did you make of this? Uh, I, I was struggling to determine the extent to which this encounter was itself traumatic and mm -hmm. in which it was sort of a symptom of whatever was going on emotionally for him. So yeah, how did you read yeah. paging Dr. Sigmund Megan? It's, oof. there is, it, it seems like there is so much going on here for Michael. It is heartbreaking. I found in the bit of research that I did that most of the information you can find, the kind of child psychology information is specifically about bedwetting yeah. and they call it nocturnal. I don't even know how to pronounce this, enuresis. But there's not as much about just regular old enuresis or losing bladder control during the day or at a wedding or whatever. Most of it seems to be about better wedding. There is definitely stuff that it you know can be about emotional disturbance, trauma, experiencing loss, abuse, stuff like that. Um, so it's interesting as a thing to pick as a signifier <laughs> to include within this little video and explanation this it's, it does seem you asked you know is this scene itself the one is his experience at the wedding itself the one that's traumatic is there stuff before and i feel like probably both because when he screams i hate you it's so heavy and you know clearly like there is a lot of this little kid's mind and in his feelings and it's kind of heartbreaking and I think it does help give us context for the intensity of his desire to be important I mean I, I guess in that case like his mom is getting married and is displacing him and he's just there as the ring bearer and he doesn't even manage to complete the ring bearing and so he's kind of getting, I'd imagine, or feeling pushed out and like he's not the highlight when he wants to be the highlight of, of his mom's life. And so it just, I think, can help us feel so much for his desire, coming back to a defense of his outrageous behavior, but how much he desires to be important within the wedding and to play a meaningful role. And I just thought it was so perfect how when Bob shuts him down in his speech and kicks him out, he yells, I hate you in that same way. So we've got this exact echo of this wedding. So I don't know, it was just really interesting to see the way that the current wedding is echoing and tapping into Michael's feelings from this much earlier wedding. 
That is such an interesting reading too, because you're sort of making me think about how, like, what his transference is with Bob Vance in particular. Mm. Oh, um, wow. As as like an analog or a proxy for Jeff. Because what's kind of interesting about Bob Vance is he does not sort of suffer Michael. Very, he, <laughs> he like does, to the extent that everybody does, kind of uh, ignores or manages Michael's like stuff, his acting out. But he also is like pretty explicitly like trying to distance or whatever with him. So I'm thinking of, you know, the, the pseudo bachelor party where he's like, I'm only going to be there for 45 minutes and no, I'm not doing the stripper thing. And like, that's all you like, he, he has boundaries. And then here, when Michael tries to assert this, like if you lay a finger on her and Bob's like, and if you do, you know, whatever. So kind of like, he wants to, in saying that Michael is inhabiting the role of father, yeah, as it were, but like it not only is that sort of inappropriate, but like it is a way of kind of trying to trump Bob's masculinity and position. And so I can imagine some child like that's what's so kind of interesting about the writing of the show is that it gives us like and I have to say this is one reason why I kind of like this version of comedy than the kind that we get now. Like mm-hmm. contemporary dramedy irritates me because it is so much more emphasizing the psycho drama that lies mm-hmm. behind the comedy, and the comedy is like peppered in. And mm-hmm. so, given the choice, I would take this, where we get this kind of hint at some kind of anguishing psychodrama without belaboring it. And so, we don't really know. Like, is he mad at his mom for kind of aban- quote unquote abandoning him or replacing him? Is he mad at Jeff? for displacing him or is he mad at his um at jeff for sort of inhabiting the role of a father and michael wants michael sees himself as the the quote-unquote father now or the man of the house Mm -hmm. or he sees jeff is displacing his father we don't know who his father you know like whatever like none of it specified you know is he did he pee himself because of this kind of anxiousness or did he pee himself because of the anxiousness of having the spotlight which he desperately wants and yet can't Mm. quite inhabit comfortably like yeah is you know and on and on and on and I love the kind of ambiguity of it so when he replays the hatred Michael is not really aware of it and the the show isn't going to really unpack it and so as much as anyway I just find it so enjoyable the the kind of lacuna of his of his whatever of his trauma but it definitely makes me more uh, yeah, like sympathetic to him in the same way that like learning, seeing or thinking about anybody's childhood is mm-hmm. like kind of tends to make me feel great empathy and compassion because it's like they're thrust into the world like we all are and they didn't create these circumstances and they coped with them in the best way that they could. Nobody chooses to become Michael Scott. <laughs> like nobody desires to be that unlikable in a way yeah. I don't know I think this show is so brilliant isn't it I'm wondering if so Michael has these feelings about his mom we talked recently about his thing where he says you know my mom went to get give me a raspberry on my stomach and I turned and she kissed my butt and it was the worst thing ever 
And this story too is making me wonder to what extent this his anger and his feelings of distress are actually about his mom or are about his absent father. Because we never, I don't think we ever hear anything about his real dad. Right. We just hear about his mom and we hear about Jeff. And so there's the the Jeff and mom backstory. But part of what that kind of channels us into is this even deeper backstory of what happened with his dad and why his dad isn't there and what that leaves for him mm-hmm. with his own feelings to deal with. Yeah. I was looking back to where we've seen Jeff come up before. And one of the times is the merger episode. And this is when Michael says the word merger comes from the word marriage. And that was what today was supposed to be the loving union between people. Instead, it has become like when my mom moved in with Jeff and once again, it becomes my job to fix it, Ugh. which is again a place of being kind of put in the position of the father if it's being his job to fix it mm-hmm. and to fix, I don't know, whatever's going wrong for his mom. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I'm curious about that. He, um, he, <laughs> What's kind of interesting is to me is, okay, so uh, I'm only talking about this wedding because it just happened, but the one that I was officiating, Corey's wedding, um, I was nervous right before and, you know, not like intensely, but, you know, it's nerve wracking to talk in front of strangers and to, you want everything to go well or whatever, and you want uh, your friends to be really happy. Um, And I was kind of talking about it with Jen and I was like, it's so weird to be nervous because um, no one really cares like (laughs) what, like nobody cares about me, certainly like, but also nobody really cares about anything other than like the bride, the groom, the people getting married, whatever, um, having a good time and being happy. Right. So like, and I felt that way too, when I've had to give like a, you know, quote unquote, best man speech or whatever, it's like you know, yeah, like people will remember the brief impression of it, but they're not going to remember what you say. They're not going to really, you know, no one is paying as much attention to you as you are, especially Mm -hmm. in those circumstances. So it's very strange to sort of have, you know, I I remember I was like, is it narcissistic to be nervous? Like, it's like, no, you know, it's normal public speaking, blah, 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 blah. But what reassured me was kind of remembering like, yeah, it's not really about you and you're not really center stage. And um uh, and it's just kind of interesting to think of michael like not only incapable of realizing that but also like he refuses to accept that because he needs and desires and craves so desperately to be the highlight as you said like to be not just like important but like the highlight yeah and part of that is this feeling that like if he's not now he will never be like Like he's kind of terrified that he's unlovable and therefore will never be married, never find happiness, never get to have his highlight. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. How can you laugh? It's so profoundly sad. (laughs) (laughs) It is so profoundly sad. That's the thing that is so uniquely wonderful about this show is that combination of being hilarious and profoundly sad at the same time. Um, that kind of combo that you're talking about, the 
humor and the sadness is like bringing me back to our conversation about Roy and Pam's hmm. or Roy's kind of melancholia. And anyway, um, yeah, that's it's it's interesting that that's the tone of this episode. It, it would be fun to think more about kind of the tropes of wedding episodes in sitcoms and also just like wedding episodes in general. But it used to be the case that like the wedding episode was a big deal, you know, like the mm -hmm. friend's wedding episode, for example, or whatever. Um, anyway, I hadn't thought much about how this episode kind of twists all that, but, um, yeah. but I only have three tiny little things uh, before my Dundies. Do you have anything uh, you want to get on the, on the record? We'll see. Maybe a couple tiny things. Uh, all right. Well, my tiny things are number one, Michael's eyebrows are out of control in this episode. Yeah. Uh, really like thick or what? Thick, yeah. Thick, bushy. I was like, needs some plucking needs to lead to tweaker. Um, <laughs> I had not noticed that number two wedding crashers. I Googled are wedding crashers real. Um, <laughs> uh, and I came across this is, this is wedding photography and films.com. Uh, and it's a blog post called Are Wedding Crashers Real? Um, so I don't know how, you know, how authentic you would or would not think this is. But um, it says the reality is that wedding crashers happen. In fact, according to the Wedding Venue Professionals Association, it's believed that one out of every 14 weddings will have a wedding crasher. One, wow. About one in every... Um, 157,142 weddings in the US. That's roughly 6% of the 2.2 million couples that get married, according to Wedding Wire. Um, wedding crashers don't always come for gifts. Sometimes it's the food, sometimes it's to pick up someone, sometimes both. Uh, and then they tell you the telltale signs to look for at the wedding to identify a wedding crasher. Mm -hmm. Which to me sounds fucking insane because wouldn't you know everybody would be like who the hell are you? But I guess you know whatever. Um, so uh, that was a, a little bit of trivia. And then the last thing was about um, Michael's final uh, quotation, <laughs> where he said, "I say let them eat cake." Margaret Thatcher, Ma Margaret Thatcher said that about marriage. Smart broad. Now, <laughs> Uh, we know that it was not Mar Margaret Thatcher. Um, it's uh, uh, supposedly said by Marie Antoinette. Um, but this reminded me, though, of a famous quote that Margaret Thatcher did say hmm. uh, that I remember processing. We processed it a lot in graduate school, and I wasn't sure if you also um, discussed this in John McClure's class, for example. Um, but so this is from uh, Margaret Thatcher, where she said, um, I think we have gone through a period when too many children and people have been given to understand I have a problem. It is the government's job to cope with it. Or I have a problem. I will go get a grant to cope with it. I am homeless. The government must house me. And so they are casting their problems on society. And who is society? There is no such thing. There are individual men and women. And there are families, and no government can do anything except through people, and people look to themselves first. Hmm. Um, and uh, so I thought that was, I mean, it just was reminding me of that, partly uh, because it's not all that different from Let the Meat Cake, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, uh, in fact, the quote continues, 
It is, I think, one of the tragedies in which many of the benefits we give, which were meant to reassure people that if they were sick or ill, there was a safety net and there was help, that many of the benefits we, which were meant to help people who were unfortunate, that was the objective. But somehow there are some people who have been manipulating the system. Um, and so I did not know this, but apparently she later said that poverty was a... Um, uh, 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 a character flaw, personality disorder. Mm. Um, so anyway, but I remember we spent a lot of time in class on this idea that there is no society, there are individual men and women, and then she kind of added families. Um, and so the only sort of legible relation there is either individual, like you're, you know, the 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 lone wolf, <laughs> we're all people on islands, or you're married and you have like kind of bio biological blood or mm. kinship. Um, but beyond that, there are no social relations. And so, you know, uh, friends, chosen family, et cetera, you know, anything else work family that Michael so enjoys. Yeah. Would, um, so anyway, I thought it was kind of interesting that the specter of Margaret Thatcher came up and it just reminded me because that's one thing that marriage wedding ceremonies crystallize, right. Is, in some sense, you are solidifying a bond and sort of detaching ostensibly from other bonds. Hmm. And I wonder if that's part of what is vexed for Michael is like, where am I? What am I to you? If, yeah. if not your family, you know, I'm your coworker, but he thinks of his coworkers as his family anyway. So yes, three little things. Wow. Hmm. You know, with with Michael, the let them eat cake thing, because part of the idea, what not the story that somebody said to Marie Antoinette, something like the, the people are starving, they do not have bread. So it's let them eat cake. So it's like a, a total misunderstanding of what people's actual circumstances are. It's very totally oblivious and not able to see you know, the common people or whatever. So for Michael in his position of leadership, you know, he wants so badly to be loved and to be the head of the family, but it, it just reminds me of that sort of obliviousness. And not that for him, because he's coming from a position of great power or anything, but just that level of disconnect. God, you're reminding really, Yeah, yeah. I really like the the scene too the final scene where they're eating they're doing the cake yeah, and yeah. um they cut it and so like phyllis and bob are feeding it to each other and kind of putting each other faces and michael comes in for some cake and the photographer he's like get me get me and he puts it on his face himself oh it's so it's so heartbreaking but i guess the i guess the thing that makes the whole episode maybe he does it i don't know feel better is that Michael unintentionally and without any awareness of his own saves the day and turns things around by finding Uncle Al. Because when Phyllis and Bob come out, um, he's sitting on the, the bench with Uncle Al who's lost and has been talking to him. And Phyllis is so happy to see him and kisses Michael and thanks him. And it just is a really happy moment for Michael that's actually in terms of timeline the thing that happens the latest but then with the construction of the episode it goes back to the cake thing and to his sad attempt to become involved 
that cake scene. Yeah, I should have added that in the cringe. I mean, I do think it's interesting, right? The cake smearing is like yet another thing of like, this is a thing that we do. And yeah. none, of, none of you are involved in this, right? You will yeah. eat the cake, but you will not rub it on the face or whatever. Um, but the idea of any of these things is that like, you'll, everyone here watching will one day get their own version of this. So you don't need to be jealous. You don't need to like run up and get, you know, but like, that's not true. <laughs> and like, that's not how yeah. life works. Right. So there was this part of me where when Michael's like, now get me, get me. And I was just like, oh, like I really did feel for him there, even though I was like, oh my God. Oh gosh, that's so heartbreaking. And you know what? I thought now I'm realizing I'm not sure if this is right. I thought he was saying, get me, get me. Cause the, the photographer's taking pictures and like he wanted, oh. was he saying that or was he telling Bob or, or Phyllis to get him with his face? That's what I thought was like, I was so just miss Oh, that's how I read it. it. Then as I was talking about it. Yeah, because that actually, that makes, that makes sense. Oh, my God. This episode leaves me feeling melancholy. Really? I thought you loved this. Well, I think it's all, I think it's hilarious. But in its humor, you're just then sort of left feeling sad. But not in the, not in the, like the, the cringy, I'm too uncomfortable way like you are. I'm like, I can't handle it. It's too... Uh, disturbing the behavior is too disturbing it's just like michael you you break my heart well on that note i wonder who will be getting your dundee i i'm <laughs> curious i think it's obvious best wedding attendee of all time award goes to michael scott what what is happening right now would you not enjoy being at a wedding with michael scott not if it's your own probably but think about, because I'm thinking about watching that dad insert himself up into the bridal party where he was not supposed to. And it was really enjoyable. And someone giving that speech, I would really enjoy. I would like to see them. I don't know. It just, it, it feels like it would bring some nice surprises and some good stories and good memories to a wedding um what if it was your wedding i would probably be less happy <laughs> so maybe this is a really mean thing to think that he's the best <laughs> wedding guest <laughs> oh god but, um i don't know from an attendee standpoint i think he's a really good time well, uh, to me, the choice was obvious. And Who else would be an obvious choice? To me, this was the only, I was like, you know, usually there are some other people I maybe consider, I consider no one else. Well, I have to tell you. Is it the photographer? My Dundee of the week uh, for... best boss goes to michael scott <laughs> oh and, my god okay um please say why <laughs> here's the thing it's phyllis's fault for inviting him it's phyllis's fault for putting him in the bridal party <laughs> like that was a critical error and uh -huh. all of it could have been expected but she knowingly did it because of something that Michael did that was incredibly generous, six 
weeks. That was incredible. Vacation or whatever. And I was just like, all right, like that's an incredibly generous uh, boss move or whatever. Not, it's not a boss move, but a move by a boss. Yeah. Uh, And so, yeah. And I also thought going by our plot uh, kind of like logic, if Michael hadn't done that, you don't really get this episode and you don't get it playing out in the way that it did. So I couldn't think of anybody else. I thought Roy, no, like, I'm sorry, he gave 20 bucks to the band. Uh, uh-uh. I did think about Scrantonicity, but you know, like they only know the police and sting. Um, I thought about Jim surprisingly, oh. uh, because I liked his recommitment to Karen. I was like, you need yeah. to appreciate her. Uh, I thought about Dwight. You know, he, he, he's a good bodyguard, but it's, it's clear and obvious Michael. And he's even sort of apologetic at the end. Um, yeah. so, uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. So I, I cannot believe we're in agreement, but wow. well, I'm thrilled. There it is. Tyler, next time we have what I think is considered to be kind of a famous episode, business school. Famous you say, okay. I think. I'm very curious. This is going to be very, and and it will give us a chance to talk about school, teaching, pedagogy. <laughs> yeah, we can see what we think of uh, what we think of Ryan's business school. All right. Well, I look forward to it. In the meantime, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.